And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displease God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So, as always, to fill up the measure of their sins. But God's wrath has come upon them at last. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love, and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in just all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures always. Father, thank you for that. Thank you for your word. Thank you for what we were able to consider last week and now again this week. We pray that you might fill our hearts with great love for your word and for these truths and that we might not leave this place as we came. We might leave more like Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Years ago, 
I learned an important lesson whilst walking in the forest. I learned the lesson uh, not on my own, but from uh, uh, my best friend, my wife, who uh, taught me to pay attention to the details of the forest. So see, I, I, I tend to, when I'm out like that, become overwhelmed by the big picture, by the beauty of, of the forest. And I miss what's tucked under the canopy of the forest, all that foundational stuff that's there. I'd be walking along, she'd say, don't step on that. And I would look and I didn't see what that was. That's an anemone. Don't you know what an anemone is? I can't even say it. What's that over there? Oh, that's lichen. What kind of lichen? I don't know all the different kinds of lichen, but she knows them. All the wildflowers, all the lichen, all the moss. All the rocks. In the passage uh, last week, we looked at the forest. We looked at the big picture, right? We, we looked at the pastoral notes of those several verses. Paul's concern for the church. And today we want to look at the doctrine that was tucked away under the canopy of all that concern. After all, it's the doctrine that made Paul concerned. Doctrine's always practical and the practical is always doctrinal if it's of any worth to you. Remember R.C. Sproul, everyone's a theologian. And if you're not, you're missing the point. You have to be a theologian to properly understand. We're all theologians. We're either good ones or bad ones. And so even when we're reading the Bible, we tend to, to do it kind of like a hiker, you know. You can hike out in, the, out in the great outdoors and it can all be about getting to the end, right? It can be getting to the summit. It can be getting out to the bald. It can be getting to whatever. And then you, you don't notice everything on the way. And I would encourage you when you're in the mountains hiking to don't do that. Don't miss all that beautiful foundational stuff that God's put there. In the water streams, you know, bend over and move a few little rocks and see the crawfish. And see what color is on the underside of the rock, not just on top of the rocks. And same with the Bible. Don't just, don't, don't read your Bible to get to the end. 
Don't read your Bibles just to get out to the summit. Read it all. And read it for all it's worth. Because God's given it to us. All of it. So, what I want to do is back up after that big picture last week and just rehearse. And some of these I pointed out on the way through, but we didn't spend time on them. And the first thing is, is on the doctrine of Scripture. God's Word. Uh, that's foundational, isn't it? That undergirds everything. That was the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, was the discovery of what, what is our authority? On what basis can we say anything we say? And, of course, the dominant church at the time said, well, you can, you can base what you say on what the Pope has said, what canonical law is, what human reason determines. Oh, yeah, and, and Scripture. And some of the reformers had been trained up in the, in the humanist school. Don't confuse the humanist school of the, of the 16th century and the 15th centuries uh, with the humanist movement of the 20th century here in the Western world. The humanist movement of that time uh, had, a, had a little, little mantra, ad fontes, little Latin term, back to the spring, back to the, where the water starts bubbling up, to the source. And so instead of just going back to the medieval fathers or, or back to the, the, the patristic fathers, some of these men realized that, oh, as Christians, we have to go back to the Scripture. That's where we look for our authority. That's the foundation for everything we think and do. That's, that's our reason for, for doing what we do and believing what we believe is the Bible. So they start looking there, and they find all sorts of stuff, and it throws men into crises because they'd been taught that salvation was through the machinations of men. It was through works. The gospel had been perverted because the truth had been lost, because the only authority, the Bible, had been mixed and mingled with all sorts of human additions and so Luther we have that great example in him of going through these years of crisis of not knowing if he had done enough to, 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 to say he was a Christian or not and then he came to those two little verses in Romans chapter 1 the just shall live by faith and he couldn't find anywhere in the Bible that it was faith plus anything. And so he said it must be faith alone that unites us to Christ and is the basis, is the ground for our hope. Not what I do, because I don't know if I've done enough or not. I don't know if what I did is right or not. And Paul begins here, as we saw last week, thanking God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, 
the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. This is not something, this, this word that, that Paul's talking about, it's not something that's external to us. It's something that is at work in us. And that's because it's the word of God. And it's because it's being applied to us through the preaching of the word by the Holy Spirit. Let me read you a passage that is parallel to this in the New Testament. It's Hebrews. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, even penetrating. And here we get in this, even penetrating, if it were possible, between soul and spirit. There is no division between soul and spirit. We're bipartite, we're body and soul, but how the soul and the spirit of God are intertwined, we, we can't separate that as believers. But if it were possible, the word of God could slice it apart. Of both joints and marrow, to be able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's the word of God. That's God's written word to us. That's how powerful it is. And it's at work in us. But then the overlooked verse in Hebrews chapter 4 is the next one, verse 13. And there is no creature hidden from his sight. All of a sudden, the written word of God is personified. It's not, it's his sight. He's the one that's doing the dividing. He's the one that's doing the splicing and slicing. And all of a sudden you realize just what Paul tells us in his letter to Timothy when he says that the word of God is theonoustos. It's God-breathed. Now some of you insist on reading translations that say inspired and that's not right. It's not even close to being right. Modern translations have fixed that over the years. It has nothing to do with men who, who were inspired by something external to them, but they expired God's word. That's what it means. Theonustos, it's God-breathed. It's God breathing out of those men, expiring out of them what he once said. That's the reason God's word is, we say, transcendent. It defies time, space. It's boundless. So it's just as relevant today as it was when it was first said, whether it was in the garden with Adam or in the wilderness with Moses or on the cross with Christ or in the days of Paul in Rome. John on the Isle of Patmos doesn't matter it's just as just as vital and vibrant and alive as it was then we don't have a dead word we have a living word because it's God who speaks and you see there in Hebrews how the writer linked it together the written and the written word of God and the living word of God are inseparable so we can't read God's word without saying that we've heard the voice of God. That's the reason it always kind of puzzles me and pains me when you hear a Christian say, well, if, you know, if God just spoke 
spoke to me like he did to Moses. Well, he does. If he just spoke to me like he does, did to Paul, well, he does. What that tells me is you're just not reading your Bible or you'd be hearing the voice of God because that's God speaking to us. That's the first doctrine that's tucked away here for us. We need to pay attention and we need to think as we read the Bible that way about God's word. Well, the second is this. The second little nugget, the second thing that's tucked away here is that Satan is real. And coupled with that in this passage, verses 17 through 20, is that the second coming is real. I remember years ago, someone from a, a, a modern school of theology saying, well, you reform folks don't believe in the literal second coming of Christ. And I said, where did you get that? Well, from my professor at a certain seminary down in Texas. I said, well, then he never read what we believe. We believe in the literal, visible second coming of Christ, just like the whole church has always believed. We have not spiritualized that. We believe in that, and Paul certainly did. But the thing I want us to see here is how that he links Satan's work in his life with the second coming of Christ. Or how he interweaves them might be a better way to put it. Let me start with saying, when he says here, Satan hindered us in verse 18... We have to be careful because, you know, we live in a time, many of you sit in this room, maybe even read some of this trash, but several years ago we had this whole Left Behind series and we had the Peretti uh, Darkness series. And if you read those books, you had this idea that Satan was behind every bush. I mean, Satan's right here with us right now. And the fact is, Satan's not ubiquitous. Satan's a created being. He is not a divine being. Only God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are ubiquitous. And even Christ in his God-manness is not with us right here, right now. He is seated on the throne in heaven. He won't be with us until the second coming. But the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, is with us. That's the reason Trinity is so important. If you don't understand the Trinity, if you don't believe in the Trinity, then you don't have a God with you at any point in time in your life. You only have a God with you if you're Trinitarian. But that's not the point here. The point here is Satan hindered him. But how is that? Because we know from Scripture... Colossians 2.15, that when God the Father had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Christ Jesus. It's Colossians 2.15. Okay, well, who are these authorities? Well, Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that it's Satan. 
He's one of those rulers and authorities that's been triumphed over. That's the fulfillment in Christ on the cross. That's the fulfillment of the promise, that initial evangelical, proto-evangelium as we call it, promise of Genesis 3.15. That the seed of the woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. There's the crushing. Satan has been dealt a death blow. Ephesians chapter 6, we're told that we're to be strong and resist the rulers against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Again, we're to resist Satan. He's dying a slow death because he's had a fatal blow administered to his head on the cross. And that'll eventually come, Revelation chapter 20, verse 10 tells us, at the very end, he'll be cast into the darkness. Jude tells us that that's what the darkness was made for, was for Satan and his followers, the children of wrath. In the meantime, and we could illustrate this with a lot of homey illustrations, but you can think of men who have been very influential in this world, and then they slip up and they do something, and they're imprisoned, and they're imprisoned for life, and yet their minions carry on their their plans and carry out their work as if they were out there doing it themselves. You can find that illustrated in history. In good illustrations as well as bad illustrations. And here Satan is spoken of. But notice notice what Paul does. He says, we wanted to come to you, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope? He just moves so smoothly here that you can miss it if you're not careful. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Did you see there? What's our boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? When is Satan finally dealt that final blow at the second coming of Christ? Again, Revelation chapter 20. And he just brings all this together here so wonderfully. This is all real to Paul. Satan hindered us. Even though he's been dealt a death blow, he's, he's bleeding out as it were. And yet the second coming is our hope. That's when it's all going to be finished. We'll be free from the presence of sin then. And that includes the influence of Satan, the prince of darkness. So that's a doctrine tucked away here. The relationship of Satan and Satan's final end with the second coming and how real the second coming is when Jesus comes and the new heavens and new earth come and we're delivered in those imperishable, glorified bodies. And that's what... Samuel Rutherford was writing about when he wrote, Glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. 
not until then. Well, we're going to stop there. I thought Friday afternoon late, why, why did I just finish two sermons for this week when I don't think I can even finish one? There's just too much here. So we'll look at those, those last points tonight, and then we'll pick up chapter 4 next week from 1 Thessalonians. But don't miss these wonderful gems, these wildflowers, these, these beautiful lichen that are growing on the trees, the, the, the beautiful moss. Don't you love the moss in the forest? You just ever stop and sit in it and just enjoy the texture of it. And you just stop and look at these wonderful doctrines that are set before us here. The doctrine of Scripture. In the middle of Paul giving thanks for his people. And then the reality of Satan. And yet the reality is he has no power over us because he's, he's bleeding out. He's, he's dying a, a million deaths between the cross and the second coming of Christ. And all we have to do is as as Ephesians 6 says, put on the full armor of God and resist him. We don't argue with him. We don't cast him out. He's already been cast out. We just simply, we just simply obey Christ and resist the devil. Flee the devil. And we succeed. We persevere in the faith. And Paul's hope, even though Satan hindered him, Paul's hope was the second coming. I think if there's one thing that, that Christians can lose sight of easily because we live so temporally is the second coming. And we should be, of all people, people who look forward to the coming of Christ because we have nothing to fear. He's coming a second time with no mention of sin. Why should we not look forward to that? Christ, grand appearing, the resurrection of the body, the glorified bodies, Satan is vanquished, everything is ours the new heavens and new earth. Father, thank you. We pray that if there's any here who don't have this hope, that you give them faith that they might have this hope in Christ Jesus to live without fear and to look forward to the coming. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.